Um, I was beginning to feel intensely nervous about being able to finish this book in tonight and tomorrow night. So I looked at the calendar for June, and even though um, my, my June is very scattered, but there are a couple of Tuesdays in there, so I can, we, I at least am going to relax, and uh, we'll just take as long as we take because we can also finish it in June. So you might not have been feeling the unbearable pressure, but I have to. I know, but you just never know. And I just didn't like, I mean, after this is class number 64, it seemed kind of cheesy to just, you know, to make 65, 6, and 7 a little crummy because I was in such a hurry. And actually, all of a sudden, now that we finally escaped from the Samyama, <laughs> we've absorbed in it for a while. <laughs> yeah, Samyama had completely absorbed us, but now we have escaped. And so the light is dawning a little bit more on these. Yeah, I do feel so. Okay. So now we are at, or do we have any questions left over from previous um, cycles? All right, number four, uh, sutra, book number four, we're in now, sutra number seven. The actions of a true yogi are neither good nor bad, white nor black, even though actions which proceed from ego awareness are of three kinds, good, bad, and mixed. And the commentary, in those past lives, he will have committed many wrongs from which the sattvic mind today would cringe and many good deeds for which today he would be grateful. But the good, bad, and mixed deeds that impeded his own path are no longer remembered by his now-dead ego. Therefore, they touch him not. That's really, isn't it comforting? Yeah. Thumbs up on that one. That's what Trisha says in the back. You know, this is, this for me at least, um, these last few sutras, I, I think the word is actually transformative. I've actually grasped something here that I've been trying to grasp for a really, really long time. I mean, naturally, huh, excuse me, I haven't grasped it. I'm not as totally in the dark as I was before. <laughs> There's a hairline crack, you know, in the total blackness in front of me which is how you actually can just separate yourself from yourself. It, it, it's so, when the self contemplates separating itself from itself, the self can't figure out how you could ever do that, can you? It just doesn't make any sense. But, but the power of Patanjali's conviction and his consciousness and Swami's commentary, it's just somehow, I don't know, at least I'm just speaking for myself, it's just sort of like there's just this little tiny picture all of a sudden and as I was saying last week when um, Swamiji said, you know, that Master doesn't care whether I've done right or wrong. He only cares that I'm becoming more free. That, I was quoting Swami saying that a situation in his life, he didn't know how it was going to work out. But what he felt from Master was, Master was pleased that he was so free in relation to that situation. And, Somehow for me that just, that did a certain click in my mind. Because I've heard Swamiji say so many times, you know, it doesn't matter whether things are good or bad. And the, the yogi doesn't matter whether it's pleasure or pain. And I, I just I couldn't go there. Because it makes a big difference to me whether it's pleasure or pain, or it has made a difference. But it's just suddenly, 
you just realize if you're trying to get free, the only thing that really matters, that was the piece of the equation that I hadn't gotten, that if you get free, when you, that freedom begins to come to you, that's when you really realize that it doesn't matter. And that like all spiritual tests that we go through, once you've been through a few of them, you're a little more comfortable with the process. You know, you know that this is how I feel now, but I know I've been through difficult things before, and if I just hang in there, it's going to come out okay. I mean, it's not like that knowledge is effortless or painless, but there's still, there's a, there's a piece of you that has faith in it. Um, I mean, I've watched that when, uh, I, I watch it just in terms of, of, of things that don't, no longer distress me. Let me put it like that. When you're faced with, you know, a really hard project to work on or a very tight deadline or the necessity to put out way more energy than you thought you were going to or just something that I don't want to be flippant about it, but I'm relatively comfortable with. Okay, you know, so we're going to have to stay up all night to finish this. Okay, so this is just so much more work than I thought it was going to be. And then you see people around you melting down over that and you sort of think, What's the big deal here? We're just going to finish. That's, that's the issue. And you can extend from that to the fact that there's other kinds of things that, you, that I still perceive as suffering that other people would simply not perceive as suffering. I mean, certainly in Swamiji's life, that would be true. It's like, you just, he, he, it's a challenge, but, and it's going to take energy, but it doesn't cross his mind that it's suffering. It's, it's just a fact that has to be dealt with. The same way is I have a little threshold that might be a little higher than some other people coming up behind me. That it's merely effort. It's not, it's not a problem. It's just effort. And I could suddenly see how that simply, you, go, you extrapolate forward. And if you know that in the end, you're going to finish it and be free, then it doesn't look as hard to you as it does if that is merely, merely an affirmation or a presumption. The difference between that and experience. Um, I hope that makes sense to you because it's been a very important realization for me. I was reading because I've been going over these files. I'm in, I'm in the SRF drawers right now, of, and the because so much in those drawers is typewritten, single spaced. Sometimes on both sides of the page, there are more words per cubic inch in those file drawers than there are in any of my other file drawers. So, I'm hoping to finish um, in the next two weeks, but I'm not sure that I can because it can't be rushed. But in any case. I was reading in 1982, Swamiji wrote up, wrote up, I think it was the first time he'd really written it up in such extensive form, the events that led up to his being expelled from SRF. And he said at the beginning of that little thing, he said, um, if you're going to take life's blessings, you're going to have to take its kicks too. He said, because they tend to come together. <laughs> and then he said, but if your goal is freedom, then you become less concerned about whether it's kicks or blessings because what you're really watching is where it leads. And again, for the first time, in, well, not for the first time, but in this little cycle of time, I clicked again into my mind that you're not looking at the process that you're going through. You're looking at where that's taking you. And, and you know how different that is? Because so much... So much of suffering is self-concern. And that's why animals don't suffer the same way that we do. And Swamiji is fond of telling a story about some doctor who was working in some primitive area of some undeveloped country and just how, 
how physically stoic so many of the people there were compared to people who live in more modern civilization because they just didn't have the same sense of delicacy about themselves that we have about ourselves that that causes us not only to feel pain but also to intensely react to the thought of what might be happening to us. What about me? It was interesting. This is just a sidelight on that, but I read an interview with Dr. Peter. I think it was in Clarity Magazine, and he was saying just biological facts. If you have chronic pain for a certain period of time, the brain itself gets into the habit of reading pain. And so you not only then have to shift the, the cause of the pain, you also have to retrain the brain not to perceive pain. And that's the phantom limb syndrome, that they, phantom pain from a, even if a limb has been severed, people will still feel pain in it, even though it's not even part of your body anymore because your mind is trained to do that. I mean, that's a a physiological fact, but you can see how that could go to more subtle levels, that we have simply trained ourselves to, to be distressed about certain conditions because we spend all our time taking care of something that isn't us, <laughs> which is our body and our ego. And our, our, there's so much hurt that's based on, why is this happening to me? And especially if you can blame someone, why are you doing this to me? I'm not being treated fairly. So Amitji wrote in something else, he said, uh, you know, when, when you're hurt, there's, there's two, two when, when you, you're hurt with people, there's two ways that this can happen. One is, your hurt has two forms. One is, why are, why are you treating me like this? How unfair. And the other is just the sense of hurt because your love has not been reciprocated. And he said there is ego in both of those. But uh, the first is more binding because you're blaming someone else. And the other is you're just acknowledging that something has happened to me and now I'm disappointed. Tough. But now what he's saying here is that when we ourselves have our own, you know, I, love the, I like the way he puts it, the sattvic mind cringes from the recognition of what we've actually did, done. But then we just, there's no, um, there's no response because there's no self there. It's just the wave went up and the wave went down, but there's nobody riding the wave. And that's what all of these are about, have been last time and this one too. Um, I said, it's hard to grasp the reality of this, but it's certainly worth striving for, isn't it? <laughs> Just to get there. Okay, any questions or comments before we go on? Okay, four eight Of ego-motivated acts, only those vasanas, those subconscious impressions for which present conditions are favorable, bear karmic fruit in any particular incarnation. If in some past life you drown someone in the ocean... But in this lifetime, you have lived your whole life in the mountains. Your karma will catch up with you. But in this case, it may have to wait until some future life. In these ways, too, a yogi in Nirbhakalpa Samadhi sees the eventual perfection of the working of the law of karma. That it's a very long cycle, and eventually everything resolves. And that, that also makes you, I certainly... The more I've understood reincarnation and karma, you know, the, the less willing you are to do to transgress. You know, there's no, there's no, there's no place in your awareness where maybe I can get away with this. <laughs> Ever comes in, 
because there's no way I can get away with this. It's just, it's not going to happen. And on another level, although it's, it, depending on your temperament, it's a little challenging, why be concerned about what anybody else has done either? Because it will balance itself out. And you may be suffering today because somebody has done something that seems inconsiderate to you, but the only reason you're receiving that is because you got to be the one to dish it out before. And when you were dishing it out, you probably were enjoying it because whatever it was, it was giving you a certain something that you wanted. But the certainty that it will all balance out in the end and nobody gets away with anything, it's not always easy to hold that because we get hurt and there's just this weird idea that if we can become then a channel for negative energy ourselves, that somehow we'll feel less bad. <laughs> weird. There it is. Yes, Tandava. Um, this might be a little bit of a side issue, but... Um, how specific is the law of karma? Does it matter that much that you killed somebody by drowning them in the ocean? Like, yes. like why would that part actually be important as opposed to the, the impulses within you that made you want to kill somebody, which seems like you know, somebody could still come and get you in the mountains and you'd have the karma come back to you. Like, why would the ocean itself have to be involved? I think, I, I myself, thank you for bringing that up. I had exactly that same thought. Is it the impulse to kill, or is it actually having to experience what you inflicted? Yeah. No, it's gruesome. It's, it's, it's very gruesome. I mean, it's gruesome in the sense of, wow, how much have we done? How much are we going to experience? And that's why this is also very comforting, because you realize that, you know, in the end, it, you just, it all goes away. It doesn't, you don't feel it in the same way. And you don't feel the karma in the same way once you are on the spiritual path then you also realize you work it out through Kriya, which is extremely important. And then the Guru's grace often comes between you and the karma. Like, as they say, you, you, know, you, were, you were destined to drown, but instead you just fall off the boat. But you're picked up right away because literally the Guru has inserted you. When it was coming time for you to drown, you just don't need that experience anymore because all it was, what it was destined to teach you is... Um, Reformation, compassion, um, you know, not blaming others, self-control. If all those things are already learned, then it's, it's just a waste of time and energy for you to have to go through it. So the guru will take the karma on himself and literally protect you from it. But the implication here is, yeah, it has to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth here. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> um, I, it seems to me, though, I mean, common sense says that there's also vibrational resonances. That it, but Master said every single thing, remember? Every single thing that you desire has to be fulfilled, even the desire for an ice cream cone? Yes, Master said. So the desire that you think it's pleasurable to drown someone, that you'll get what you want by drowning someone, has to be compensated for somehow? It's also, it also could vary just depending on if you know, this, or you're the sort of person who obsesses over thinking of the cruelest ways to hurt somebody versus like this was handy and you had a grudge <laughs> against somebody and you were walking along the pier and you just decided to knock them off. At the <laughs> You'd have more involvement with the method than the other. Well, it seems so to me. It seems like that there's going to be, but I would be outside my portfolio if I said that I knew 
And I found it interesting that he used that as an example. But I do think there is a certain, uh, Patricia wants that, I think there is a certain mm, exactitude about it. You've run the pure physics of it, exactly. Trisha. Little side question on the ice cream cone issue again. <laughs> um, this has come up so many times for me because... The ice cream cone? The, the, yeah, that whole thing. If there is a passing fancy for something, and then you realize it wasn't so... You're, you're not interested. Like if I was in seventh grade and wanted to be a, a pop band like the Beatles, and that lasted like a week, and then later on it was like, God, I can't think of a worse thing. I mean, can you say cancel that? Do I have to go through? <laughs> I, I really, I worked through it on my own. I don't need to do it. <laughs> Looking for a way out here. <laughs> to think about, aren't they? Um, I believe that the karma law is fair, and that yeah, and that the amount of energy that you put behind something and the, the, the intensity of your intention, the purity of your intention, the clarity of your intention, all has something to do with the result. But why would it even cross your mind, even as a child, to want to be a, a pop singer? I mean, because it doesn't occur to every child in the world. I mean, some of them would just think it would be the, from the beginning. I mean, they might prefer to be a policeman or a fireman or a drug dealer, but they might not want to be in a pop band. I mean, it's going to be just... Something is, there's going to be some connection with your karma somewhere or the thought wouldn't cross your mind. That's enough. <laughs> so you're in the choir. I'm good. I'm... <laughs> well, in, in fact, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, but I would also say that, in fact, that, that could be actually the resolution of it because the pop band, so to speak, may have been the only picture you had for the idea that you had in your mind. And so you might still be able to carry that idea and then fulfill it in another way that is more accurate. I was only very slightly joking when I said that comment about playing the banjo. Oh, going to do it, going to do it with for the Living Wisdom School play <laughs> saved me from having to take a bigger chunk out of this or another lifetime to learn it. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's true. One devotee at Ananda told me that he had had. Uh, uh, he's of, of my age now. That he, and. Uh, he had a notable career in the world before he became part of Ananda. And he told me that he'd had a few desires in his life. You know, certain academic recognition, um, inventions, certain kinds of research. And he was listing for me how he touched each one of them. You know, none of them ever became like a whole lifetime. But he did just touch it just enough. So that it kind of, it was like there was that much karma there. But then he just went on from it. And he didn't have to devote himself. So I think that I certainly, it's not the same as desire. Well, let me, let me put this, I was going to say a minute ago. The actual life that I've ended up living, I, I never imagined that this life was an option before I was 18. Just in, uh, in my growing up years, I was a, a fairly, you know, I had a certain amount of intensity. I didn't have ambition because I didn't know what to attach my ambition to. But I wanted desperately to do something with my energy, um, but nothing worked. And the one thing I had, the only thing I'd planned to do would be to be the mother of many children. Because the only thing I could look around and think that seemed like a rather uncorrupted pursuit was to raise children. And then one day I realized that what I really wanted to be was to be the kind of self-giving person I imagined 
a mother could be, but that merely producing babies would not make me into that kind of person. I had just thought if I just did it, it would happen. And that when I realized that my goal was actually different, then I, I fundamentally lost interest. I wanted to become that person. And then when I finally became part of Anand and did all the things that I've done, I realized in retrospect that I actually always had exactly the same desires and ambitions. It's just I really wanted to, be, to do something meaningful. I wanted to be 100% involved. Um, I wanted to be helpful to others. And I just kept shifting around from form to form. But I actually was very one-pointed in my desires. It was just confusing because there was no context for them. That's why I, I shifted so quickly when I met Swami Kriyananda because, in fact, I was completely ready to do that. I just didn't know that existed. And as soon as I saw it, I recognized it and went right into it. So even some of our little desires that might seem frivolous or, or not very focused, if you actually go behind them and ask what was my intention, well, you may realize that our intention was more consistent with our present reality than we realized. Or we've changed, and we're going to have to go through it. <laughs> That's how any of those could be true. But, but the way Swami asked the question of Master, even the desire for an ice cream cone, and the way Master said, yes, even that, also implies uh, something that is uh, more stringent then perhaps we want. Interesting. Yes. Well, how much of your ego you put into it. That's why I was saying I don't think God is a tyrant. I think there's a mathematical, metaphysical certainty here. A little bit of commitment brings a little bit of karma. A big commitment brings a lot of karma. You know, you can think about an ice cream and then it can go in the next minute, next second even. Well, yes, except the way Swami asked that question implied that the desire was just that casual and Master's answer to it was that in the affirmative. So that's creepy. Coming back to you would be the same. So it wouldn't be a huge thing. Because you can eat an ice cream very casually. It's not a giant lifetime. Yes, you don't have to spend a lifetime just to get it. Right, exactly. Well, this is the implication. All I can say is, folks, pay attention to your desires. Every minute counts. Don't think. Remember a master's walking with Dr. Lewis? And Dr. Lewis looks at some home that looks very cozy. And then master turned to Dr. Lewis and said, is it worth reincarnating for, doctor? And he had to stop and think because you're right. You're just, you know, you're going out there with this. What is Swamiji told me? The two things that draw you back, longing and regret. And so every time we feel ourselves longing or regretting, you have to ask yourself, do I really want to spend a whole incarnation sorting this one out, or can I do something now to restrain it? And as Swamiji talks about all desires, sometimes the force is greater than you, but you can always mentally resist. That's the phrase he used. You can mentally resist. And that, that counts for a lot. The actions you commit versus the actions you're committed to. And sometimes you watch yourself commit actions that you're not really committed to, but you're mentally resisting them. And that seems to count for something. <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, there's an exercise that, I don't know who suggested it. I've never heard Swami say it, but 
that I'd heard it, Ananda several times where you imagine something you're attached to and you cut the strings, you right. snap that too. So, I mean, are we saying that that's not worthwhile or oh, not significant? No, that's very worthwhile. That's the mental resistance. That's the mental resistance. Kind of, so then if you have a desire and you immediately go to work on releasing it or letting it go, dropping it to the side, however one wants to think of it. Can you be free of it that way, or are you kind of implying that, yeah, but something's going to get you because you desired it in the first place? Well, I think you're already getting it right now. It's unsettling your peace. Say it again? The karma is already returning to you because it's disturbing your peace. And then you work on it. And then you work on it. So, I mean, again, I'm a little outside of my portfolio here because I don't exactly know how it works, but common sense tells us, and Swamiji has said this many times, for example, he gives the whole story about if you like to have nice things. He says, well, buy nice presents for other people. So you fulfill the desire for nice things, but then you give them to other people. And in that way, you've partially you've fulfilled the desire and overcome it at the same time. And so all, the, all, all you can see how all of that would work. And then the constant, I know um, many people have suggested, and it's, I mean, I've heard other people suggest, you know, that you just really, when you're meditating, you visualize something that you're afraid of or something that you're attached to or something that you're sad about. And just see how far you can go to letting it go. Shivani um, used to always talk about her, her fear was that she would get thrown out of Ananda. So she used to practice being thrown out of Ananda and every time Swami would call her to a meeting, she would always think, this is it. And, and you know, it was a, sometimes when you'd have to walk all the way from one place to another to, to go, get to Swami's house, she'd spend the whole walk over just getting ready to accept it. So by the time she opened the door, she was ready for him to just tell her to go, and she would just go. <laughs> you know, just karmic fears that are in there. And so you, you just practice. And it actually does work. I mean, I don't... Uh, uh, when uh, when I thought David might have been burned up in the fire uh, when we were in India and the temple caught fire and I didn't know where he was, um, and then he was fine. I, it was only minutes where there was uncertainty. But the next day I could feel that the fear was still in me and I had to decide whether or not I would just comfort myself by saying it didn't happen or whether I would actually try to face into the fear because I mean, the fact that it didn't happen didn't mean that it wouldn't happen. And if I feared it, then that sets you up to face it. So I, it was only a visualization, but I did it very, very deeply. And I just, re, I just went back to the point at which the anxiety started, and instead of relieving it by circumstances, I just imagined it playing all the way out to the end. And it felt to me like there, there was a real progression no, it, it hasn't been tested. But it certainly felt to me like it was a real progression. So I, th- I think that's worth doing, you know. Because what comfort is it? I, I, I said this several times. I'm a happy person because nothing bad is happening to me. That's not being happy. That's being pleased. Being pleased is not freedom. So what if bad things happen to you? Are you still a happy person? That's just like... Uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, you know. It's like you're not free. You're just, you're just working out. You're just spending your good karma. What happens when the bad karma hits? And that's where Master is pleased if you're free. It doesn't mean that you don't say, this is wonderful. This has been a fabulous experience. I'm so grateful for this experience. But you're detached from, 
you take the blessings when they come and that's great. And then you take the difficulties that are the inevitable other side of that and you try to say, that's great because I'm not doing either of these. The only thing I'm doing is staying centered in the midst of life's experiences so that whatever comes to me, I will be just the same. It's very, very... um, well, that's just a world different from the way the world lives, that's all. It's just something completely else. But you must understand, that doesn't mean you're unappreciative or dull or apathetic or uh, uninvolved. It's just, okay, this is challenging and this makes me sad. Okay, this is beautiful and this makes me effortlessly joyful. But really, the whole thing is to remain conscious of God and to become free. You see it in Swamiji. I was talking to someone just a little a few hours ago about, you know, he really suffered from what SRF did to him. He really did suffer. And his heart was broken to the end about the way Diamata treated him. He never, I mean, he, he became free of it. But to become free, well, I suppose he became like this. It no, it no longer touched him at all. But he never pretended that it wasn't happening. And, and he, was very, he was very tender about that pain. You know, it was just... But it, it, it's, it's, it's a very subtle thing, but to me it's, it's extremely important that we, all, we must also know how to suffer. We can't think just because we're yogis that we don't suffer. Of course we suffer, but we suffer with a different attitude. We suffer with the attitude that it doesn't matter what happens to me, it only matters what I become through what happens to me. So now I'm suffering the betrayal of someone that I deeply love who has never understood me and my love has been, uh, you know, tossed back in my face. So how could you possibly be indifferent to that? You would have to be made of stone. But what matters is what I become through it. So through this dark hour, I offer this to you, God, as much as I offer anything else. It's subtle, but it's extremely important. This is where I started. I'm just, you know, like there's a hairline crack in my understanding of this. And I like it. Because this has truly bewildered me my entire spiritual life. Oh, I could say it, but in my heart, it's completely bewildered me. But I think it's, it's when you go through suffering and the benefit and the positive change. When I was writing, trying to write, the book I wrote, the first book I wrote about Swami, which was such a karmic nightmare for me, although it came out right in the end, I declared that I was writing the book, and I spent about three years mostly writing it, at the end of which I had nothing. Count it. Nothing. I mean, literally, I was so neurotic, and just so completely neurotic, I, I, I typed and deleted and printed pages and threw them away. I was just nuts, completely crazy. It was a whole lot of karma. It was a lot of judgmental karma that just all came to bear. You know, all the, you're, you're not doing very good work, but lousy, you know, all the judgmental karma that I'd ever put out for who knows how many incarnations just all came to a focus and absolutely brought me to my knees. I was down for the count. And at the end of it, I wrote to Swamiji, this has been spiritually, you know, spiritually, this has been superb. Just been superb. From the point of view of having a book, it's been an absolute unmitigated disaster. You know, and then it changed. 
and it was a horrible experience. I can't say it in any other way. But the fact that I remember how horrible it was and then it was over makes you just ever so slightly less freaky, freaked out when it starts over again. Because now you remember that this is the horrible part and at the other end of it, you know, at the end of this 27 hours of airline travel, I'm going to be in Paris. (laughs) So it's not so bad. Does that make sense? And then you can see how you could arrive at the point where you just observe yourself being miserable. And this is the part where the heroine cries herself to sleep every night. And it's just not such a big deal. Oh, and this is the part where the heroine is lauded by the whole world. And you know, Pardon me? I don't know. I, I don't want to count on that. Because you don't know. You know, you can't set conditions on it. You would like to think it would be. You know, but if the, if the quality of it within you has changed, if you're simultaneously grateful or faithful, I just don't know. Because what I have understood, and this, this has been very important, is that Swamiji did suffer. I mean, he did feel pain. That's what I want to say. That's more accurate. He did feel pain. It wasn't like he wasn't touched. I, I somehow tried to make him untouched. But that's not authentic. That's not really what happened. He was very hurt, deeply hurt, by that and many other things, but especially that. Hmm. Yes. There it is. But he had within him something else. He had, it, wasn't, it wasn't his entire reality. Right. But he says, I lay on the bed in my parents' bathroom, bedroom and prayed to die. That's pretty far, pretty far down. Of course, you know, it was only months. But he was still, as he, as he says, you know, I, I have the notes to prove it, he, uh, he was quite uncertain for quite a long time. And it went on his whole life, you know. It was an amazing karma. And now that I'm way in those drawers, those file drawers, I'm still a, a little unclear about how you got over, like, writing the book. What changed? What I, changed is I wrote the book. <laughs> what changed is that I... What changed is that I reached the bottom of that karma. That's what changed. And then all of a sudden, it just occurred to me how I could do it. I had to go through it, and then you were able because to go on. Purification. Wow. It was no fun. But, you know, there'd been a phobia my whole life, and it did uh, incarnations of it, and I don't know. So I can't, it, I'm, no, I'm not free by, no, please don't. No, 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 I but for that, that portion, but you I, had to I go did, through uh, it. I did make progress. Yeah, okay. And I got a book at the end of it. And the book, which I'm very glad to have done, because I think it's a good book, um, but it was more for me what I had become. The, fa- the fact that I could do it meant that I had overcome something really terrific. And I was really glad to have the book, but the book was really quite incidental to the fact that whatever it was that had prevented me from doing it, I had done it. Now, an odd thing that partially enabled me to do it was I realized that I was the only one in my very wide circle of friends who believed I couldn't do it. And I suddenly realized, you see, 
um, how egoic that was. Isn't that strange? I posited my opinion against everybody's opinion. All these great souls that I know, including Swami Kriyananda, all thought I could do it. And I kept insisting that I couldn't. And one day it occurred to me, who's most likely to be wrong here? <laughs> it was, I mean, it was, it, but that's what it is when you cling to a mood, you see. I was clinging to a mood of uh, uh, what self-doubt. It was a mood. And, uh, but everybody around me kept saying to me that my self-doubt was misplaced, and I just insisted that they were the stupid ones, not me. But you see how egoic that is? Whenever you deal with people who are a little mentally off like that, eventually you really just get fed up with their pure selfishness. I don't mean to be uncompassionate because I know they're trapped in it, but whenever, well, I'll speak for myself, whenever I've had to work closely, which I have you know, on, on quite a number of occasions, with people who have really gotten themselves trapped in what has to be called a, a mental, slightly mentally ill state, which one of those moods is, at a certain point, you know, when you become impatient, you become impatient because they're just so bloody selfish, you just can hardly stand it anymore. And that was precisely where I was standing. Nobody's opinion but mine is true. You know, you people don't know anything. I'm the only one who knows anything. And you don't see it at first because, at least for me, because you're putting yourself down. So you don't think of it as egoic. But then when you finally realize that you're positing your opinion against everyone else's, what is that but egoic? Right? And suicide. You know the fact that life is not worth living, that there's nothing to live for, that nobody loves me, that there's no hope for me. It's an ultimately self-centered action and an absolute insistence on your point of view against all the evidence. It doesn't make it less tragic or agonizing. But that's what Swami said. The ultimate selfishness is madness where you absolutely reject all realities except your own defined reality and refuse to accept anyone else's. You understand? Because, I mean, I've certainly been through it. I'm helping some poor woman who's just so miserable after trying to help her and help her and help her. At one point, I just want to say, you, you know, you, selfish woman. (laughs) But you can't. You go into the other room and say it, and then you come back and you try to be nice again. But you're not wrong in that perception. So you use it on yourself. What are the chances that I'm actually right here when I declare that, you know, there is no God and Master doesn't love me and I'm hopeless as a devotee? What are the chances that this is accurate? And that helps. At least it helps me. It doesn't mean that I don't still feel it, but I can take myself just that tiny bit less seriously. Yes, Marilyn. Chandra. Oh, look what's happened to me now that I know that I have extra classes. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I notice in the end that um, I always have to admit I don't want to be wrong. Yeah. And it, it is mm-hmm. so infuriating. Yeah, it's very infuriating to be wrong. Yeah. yeah. It's and, called and conceit. Yeah. yeah. No, but it's not a joke. No, it's not. It's not and, a joke. And, and, and so as soon as I can just, oh my God, here I am again. I just don't want to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Then, then I can try and let it go. I can start but, letting but it go. But that's a huge revelation. Is that just that desire? Who, who am I? What am I protecting? I'm protecting my ego, my self-image. I mean, it's not even against other people. It's just you just want to be right. Yeah. I like my ideas. <laughs> Actually, the um, I wish I I can't repeat it right now. But in affirmations, you no, know, in the secrets of emotional health or 
emotional healing. It's a little little secrets, but the one on conceit is superb. It's really, really good, and it just talks about you know what it is to just always think that you're right. And it, I think it includes. It's about three sentences, and it just <laughs> pins it. I think the last one points out that every everybody else's reality is just as valid as yours. You know, from that, that he says the divinity. I'll say it more clearly. Divinity is equally centered everywhere. And and he says something. The words are perfect, and I can't get them exactly right. But there's this compelling reality from the center of everyone. And their realities are so real to them. You know, what they think is just as real as what you think. And, you know, go ahead. It's, it's, it's at the same time so freeing and so impossible to believe. You know? <laughs> I, it, that other people are, are actually there? I mean, I'm, I'm not joking. <laughs> that other people, their reality is just as... Real as my own. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And maybe even more. Wow. But then... It, but it is so freeing to realize that. Yeah, it's very freeing to realize that. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not a small realization. That's why it's so tight. I mean, that's why, you know, I, I can still say honestly and truly, I like my own ideas the best. <laughs> when Swamiji was asked once, what's your favorite music? He said, oh, mine. <laughs> and then later he said, he realized he wasn't asked what's the best music. He wouldn't have answered that way. But the music that came through him is ex- exactly representative of his own inner spirit. And so he naturally he likes it the best because it matches his vibration perfectly. But he, he laughed. because It was a reporter who asked him. and He laughed because that, it just sounded so funny. Um, but that's all that he meant. Because <laughs> it's, yeah, it comes through, it emanates from my center and therefore it, it's, the most, it's the most meaningful music I enjoy listening to it the most. It speaks my language exactly. And so that's, it's fair to say that. You know, I, I often say I'm a creative artist type. Creative artist types enjoy their own ideas. They like their own creativity. They have lots of fun doing their own creativity. And that's, that's fine. That doesn't mean the mistake is to think, therefore, you have to also like my ideas the best. <laughs> because after all, they are <clears throat> my ideas. <laughs> that's conceit. <laughs> but the other is just temperament. There's a big difference. <laughs> All right. So let's go on. Where were we? So now I believe we're on 4.9, right? Though memories are individualized according to class, locality, and time. Don't you wonder sometimes what the Sanskrit words are for class, locality, and time? The impressions they left are the same. In the state of Nirbhakalpa Samadhi, one's memories of the past, though specific in themselves, do not linger on in consciousness as stronger or weaker impressions, for there is no ego left to reinforce those reactions. When we get up to 11, we have the word reactions. So um, I, what I realized, there's a certain um, thought that I've often had, which I realized that all that all karma is the same. All, I use the phrase, all karma is generic. There's like just generic brand karma. When, you, when you're on the spiritual path and it involves you, we get intensely interested in the specifics. Oh, I went to a psychic and he told me that I had this lifetime and that's why I feel like this. And I'm with you and I remember that we were there and we did this and we did that. And this is why I hate you. You know, just all these different pieces. And we're so involved. We're so interested in ourselves. 
And we think it all matters. You know, I have this karma with my mother, with my daughter, with my money, with my this. But after a while, you realize you're either centered or you're pulled off center. And all the rest of it, it really doesn't make any difference. It doesn't, all the details of what it is that's actually disturbing you and why it's disturbing you, it's helpful if it allows you to get back on center. But it's useless if it doesn't. I remember um, a situation I was in with someone who, who, well, in previous lifetimes we had this and that. And it, was, it was a tough karma. It was a really tough karma, especially from the other person's side. Um, I think I've trampled, you know, I've gone forward in my own way, liking my ideas a lot. And so certain people hold a certain resentment. And sometimes I've forgotten about it, but there we are. So I was caught in one of those. But the difficulty was the person kept using all of that knowledge not to overcome, but to justify, perpetuating the negativity. So it was worse than useless, all that information. It became self-justifying. And, you know, it was interesting. And for the most part, I think absolutely valid. But in the end, what difference did it make? And it's just like something is pulling me off center and I need to get back on center. And if getting a certain information, and I confess for me, sometimes I have been informed and sometimes I just really try to intuit, you know, what is the, char- what is the character of this confusion? What is the response that is being generated in me? What is the response that I seem to be generating in this person? Just so it can move out of just kind of emotional chaos into some understanding of what's actually the triggers here. And sometimes if I put a story on that, it helps. And, whether the, and sometimes I've said, it doesn't matter whether the story is true. I had this with, um, some of you may remember, um, Debbie Bornstein from years ago. Neela Swami called her. She now lives in Australia. She has another name. She's a very dynamic and a very interesting woman. Just, you know, full of life and energy. And just, we're not the same type at all. I respected her and liked her very much, but we were very different types. We were on an India pilgrimage together. She had a roommate who was who was very much in tune with her. Well, her husband was a roommate, actually, but she had a friend who was very in tune with her. And it came out humorously. Every time those two women would go shopping together, they would buy all this, you know, tribal, ethnic, indigenous people sort of stuff. They'd come back with all this very interesting uh, hats and fabrics and jewelry. I mean, like, in a million years, I'd never buy any of that, not once. I might even look at it, but I would never pick it up or take it home, just never. And and it looked fabulous on them. It was so great. And somehow or another, now I can't remember whether she had the intuition or I did. And we didn't get along that well at that time. We just, you know, there was always a little... She finally said, we figured out, or she said that she was a naked native and I was a British missionary who put her in a moo-moo. <laughs> and it was right on the money. <laughs> it just characterized our... And ever since, ever since she did that, you know, we just be, were able to just enjoy it. Because it was so perfect. But fortunately, it, I'm not putting her in moo-moos anymore. It just doesn't matter. But that was the energy, just like that. But the real point was, it's not happening now. Why are we still behaving that way? 
Nothing is happening now. Nothing is happening. It was just all memories. It's all generic. It's all something has persuaded you that now I need to be sad, unhappy, elated, conceited, depressed, discouraged, whatever, instead of blissfully centered in God. And it's the same battle. And you lose interest. You just lose interest in the specifics of it because in the end, it all goes to nothing anyway. And so that's how we become much more impersonal about ourselves too. It just, we just lose interest. We're not less determined. It's just boring. Yes. The thought crossed my mind this morning. Uh, it's got something to do with this whole weekend. But I started feeling like I was just a collection of habits. And they were, they were kind of away from me. And they were almost like shadows. And, and it almost feels like I could give up any habit I want now. Just hang on to that girl. <laughs> but you see, that's exa- no. But that's that's all the sutras that we've been talking about. That's as above, so below. You know, you're not in nirbhakalpa samadhi in which it's all really gone for from you. But you are moving in that direction. And and it's just it's the whole Easter thing in Jesus. I mean, is I, I it's just a bunch of habits that that are yes. outside of the yes. center. Yes, yes. And that's why we put out so much energy, and that's why it is such a blessing to be able to come together for holy occasions, because you, your, your vibration shifts, and you actually have an experience of something that is different than our ordinary consciousness, and that's how we progress. There, those are the pearls, and then you hang out in those other beads for a while, and then you hit another pearl, and finally the pearls get really close together. Okay, let's take a break. So we are now up to Sutra 410. Since the desire to live is eternal, those impressions have no beginning. In that high state of consciousness, those past impressions do not intrude themselves as having had a moment of initial impact. This is very, very fascinating. I, um, I have looked at this. I ha- can hardly understand it. I think this is a really big, especially that since the desire to live is eternal, those impressions have no beginning. I, I, I can't comment on why that is a therefore. But I do am really impressed by this, having had no moment of initial impact. You know, because at the time things happen, they have a great impact. And so the, the comment is there. This has to do with, I think it has to do with the wheel of time that we're, I, I love to visualize with us, with the wheel with all the spokes, that if you, the closer you are when you're standing in the center, you're equidistant from every point. If the wheel is past, present, and future, and you're at the center of the wheel and all the spokes, you're equidistant from every point on that spectrum of time. And so the, the, the more you move toward the center the more you're in equal relationship to the whole wheel of time. And what makes you feel like it has a great impact is if you're living out at the corner of the rim, that's the only reality you have and you're very close to it and everything hits you when it's happening. But one of the things I guess you realize when you move into that center of the wheel is that it's, it's all happening simultaneously. Time, past and present is an illusion. And so the idea that you know, there was a, a specific separated moment in time when this actually happened, 
Or the other part of it that I, I'm thinking of, and this is just speculation. Let me just think how to, how to put this. Wait, let me, um, let me catch this better. Oh, Master said, because one thing follows another in our experience, we think that one thing causes another. I mean, that's just another one of those, oh, uh-huh, yes, sir. But <laughs> because on a certain level, we're talking, the whole conversation has been about karma and how one thing causes another. That's why I don't really quite get it. But the, the point being, if past, present, and future are happening simultaneously, it's not like it wasn't and then it is and that all these things had to build up. If the karmic trajectory is inevitable, if Rigu can predict that at the moment that this page is being read, there will be a thunderclap. It's like, when did that thunderclap happen? And there, there was the story about, uh, now let me try to get it straight, but some, some uh, great uh, saint who lived out in the desert, and every day a bird would deliver him a half a loaf of bread, and then some other great saint came to visit, and that bird delivered a whole loaf of bread. And stories people tell about praying for something and you pray for it and then it comes in the mail that day, which means that it must have been mailed before you prayed for it. So how do you reconcile all of those different things? Things are in motion before you know that you're going to need them. So where is the moment? And this apparently is is among other things that you see. I'm sure there's other implications to this that I don't really know. But those are enough. Aren't those interesting? You know, you ha- the ego is the infinite self, the soul, identified with the, the eternal self, identified with the ever-changing world. So the only reason that makes us seem that things are happening sequentially, that this is more important than that, is because we have identified ourselves with that reality. So presumably when we identify ourselves with the eternal, we realize that that whole time was not happening. Remember Swamiji wrote, when he was a small child, he used to have that experience, that superconscious experience of going into the light. When he came to Master and became a disciple and learned to meditate deeply, he went back into that same experience, and these were his, he said, and he realized that in that state, no time had passed. That in that state, he was having exactly the same experience in the same moment that he'd had 20 years earlier when he was a child. In that state, no time had passed. Whoa, this is where the music comes in. You know, the weird, this is a far out idea, isn't it? Yes. Um, We hear that when people go to the astral plane, Uh uh, many of them have this review where everything in their life they can see at the same time right. in this panorama. So does that mean that there is not time on the astral plane? Well, I think you have a slightly different... They talk about how many years you spend in the astral world, yeah. so you're still within the realm of time. Um, I think it seems that time must pass in a slightly different way. Um, but... Uh, I don't think it, I think you just have a perspective on it, you know, because you can you can step back a little bit from this, and you could you go into a superconscious state and you see it slightly differently. So that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist on that plane. It just means you might be closer to the center. Or, outside of 
Christ consciousness, there would be time. That, that's in. how, because when I asked Swamiji, because Rob Christopher asked me, if you can reincarnate backwards in time, can I just, will my next incarnation be in the Civil War, you know, instead of this one? He said, no, in this realm, time is sequential, and you, when you come, each time you come back into the world of time, you, you progress sequentially through it. can see it, but you can't go different places in it, like in the yes. writing of the book of Brighu. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That would be exactly. Now, Brighu, however, Swami said, did he come forward and make that thunderclap? Or did, you know, he just, that's one of the... standing at the center and he could, he could see it. when it was going to happen. Exactly. Because he was in the center and he could see everything. He could see all the threads would inevitably lead in this direction. And then he would run back out to one point on the edge and write the book. I and don't know. <laughs> I think that the thing is that all the constructs we use to understand it from this plane of consciousness are wrong. <laughs> Vivekananda's answer to the question, why did God create the universe? His answer was, the level of consciousness that asks the question cannot comprehend the answer. Which I thought was really clever. I like Swami's better, but it is the nature of bliss to want to share itself. But I thought Vivekananda's was really clever. Okay, and actually also true, because there's a lot of questions. I, I realized I, I had this cycle of thought once too that the answer to many questions is you have to have an experience before you can understand that. So that's why the answer to many questions is do Kriya. And it really is the answer to the question. It's not just an off-putting answer. It's that you have to have a different level of consciousness before you'll be able to answer that question. Otherwise, you'll ask it in words, and I'll answer you in words, and you won't understand it because it's not, an, it's not a, a concept that can be articulated and understood in words. It has to be perceived by consciousness. But you see, that's the difference between scripture and clever writing. Swami, I don't, I'm not certain what book Swami was talking about, and I'm not going to try to guess. But there's, there was something he wrote. There was a certain book that people thought was a very holy book, and they wanted to know what he thought about it. And he said he just, it did not have the vibration of scripture. It didn't mean that it didn't have nice ideas in it, but the difference between saying God is love, well, think of the story of St. Anthony of the Desert when the church was being torn by that conflict as to whether Jesus was man or God. And they brought him in from the desert and he's in the church. And when they come to whatever point that was in the mass where the two points of view were... Um, fighting each other and literally in the mass one group is reciting one creed and the other is reciting the other Anthony above it all declares about Jesus I have seen him and that he was not answering the discussion on the level at which the discussion was having, hap, having happening but he silenced the discussion because he declared a reality a revelation that he knew with so much power that at least for that moment everybody understood there was no dispute anymore and of course anybody could have said I've seen him but if they hadn't <laughs> nobody would have listened you know, that, that's why it's um, it's, why it's very interesting when I have read the Bible at different times studied the Bible I've, I've had moments when I realize I understand why people read this Bible all the time you know why, why the people who are really dedicated to the Bible could just read the Bible? Because it's, it's not words. 
It's a transmitting station for a, a, a state of consciousness that just changes you. Scripture is a real thing. But you can't explain that to people. They'll argue with you. Oh, well, this, maybe that. They say this, they say that. You, you just can't go there. It's, oh, I don't want to be too rude, but it's pearls before swine. You just have to be a little careful. All right. So, did, did you have a question? Someone else? I was just thinking Swami's answer that it's the nature of bliss to want to share itself. Self. Well, I don't, I guess I'm getting to more to understand it, but I don't really, this world isn't really bliss, you know. And so, anyway, I just, it's hard to understand that answer. But Swamiji says, and he uses, see, this is Swamiji's genius. He'll take a very high, incomprehensible truth, and I truncated that, and I need to say it, I need to explain it. And he'll show you how you can access it. His example is the most mundane possible. If you discover a new restaurant, what is the first thing you do? You tell somebody how much you enjoyed it. And then you try to persuade them to go. I mean, just this morning, I was telling everyone about this body worker that I know with a woman who does massage. And I know that my joy and the treatment she gives me are going, is going to be increased if you all have them too, because she's so effective. It just makes me happier to know you're doing it. And it's completely unnecessary for me to tell you about her. I'm doing it for completely selfish reasons because I'm happier knowing that you're part of it. And so Swami's just explaining to us, where does that stop? And if the nature of God is infinite bliss, he wants you to have it. And no, people are not experiencing bliss because they're in the middle of the story. And that's everybody's argument. But this isn't a very happy place. Well, that's not his fault. It's not God's fault. That's because we're breaking his laws left, right, and center. And then if people argue, well, how do you know about those divine laws? You say, oh, there's a really nice restaurant I know. Let's go have lunch. (laughs) It's just a hopeless, it's a hopeless argument. (laughs) That's why Yogi Ramya that Swami visited, who Master said was one of the few completely liberated souls, he lives in this little village. And as he told Swamiji, mostly I talk to the people here about the crops and their food. He, it's, you know, they're not interested in what he has to offer, so he doesn't tell them about it. I'm sure they think he's a nice fellow, but there's nothing he can say. He, I, I, undoubtedly, he exerts an uplifting influence on the atmosphere, but why would he tell them? Hmm. Okay, any other questions? Then we'll go on to 4.11. The characteristics of personality being held together the characteristics of personality being held together by impact and reaction, desire and attachment disappear upon the cessation of these four. That's, I love this one. Now, the characteristics of personality are held together, are held together. I mean, this is what holds us together. This is what makes our personality, is that the events that happen have an impact on us, and then after they have an impact, we react to them. I mean, now that almost by itself, that defines personality, doesn't it? Something happens and you react. I'm, uh, you know, people react. Some people react calmly, some with fire, some with, you know, emotion, some with uh, thought. But something happens and you react. And that's, that is your personality. And then desire and attachment. We want things and we, we hold on to them. And when these... Um, the, the personality itself disappears when we're no longer 
subject to impact and reaction, desire and attachment. That the personality is nothing but these, these waves of response. That's what's being said here, you see. The personality has no existence. It's not a thing in itself. It is merely the way we play with the energy. And the way we tend to play with the energy is that we feel the effect of things and we react to them. Do you know that story in Autobiography of a Yogi where the policemen are chasing the man they think is the murderer and he's really a sadhu and he doesn't heed their call? The man takes the machete, chops the man's arm off. The man has no reaction. Having his arm cut off has no impact on his state of consciousness He merely picks up his arm, his severed arm. He picks up his severed arm. Just really think about it. Reattaches it and then tells the policeman that I'm not the man you're looking for. The personality has ceased because events have no impact. There is no reaction. He has no desire or attachment. He doesn't desire not to be arrested. He has no attachment to having an arm. So there's nobody home if all those things are gone. That's what's, it's because all of this otherwise <clears throat> gives a very strong impression of actually being there. And it, when, we, when we grasp an idea like this, we recognize everything is mutable. We're nothing but a pattern of energy. And no matter how deeply we have hypnotized ourselves to feel that we must be this way, that's why what I was saying earlier about becoming too infatuated about all the reasons why I allow things to affect me and react, why I desire and am attached to all of these things, it doesn't serve the cause. It just gives us one more way to be trapped in that. And when we finally let go of all that, even-minded and cheerful, calm acceptance and joy, so that things happen. I, Swami said in one place, why take things so hard? <laughs> just why take things so hard? He said, it doesn't matter what happens, just what you become through it, as Master put it. And why we take things so hard is because of this, because of desire and attachment, which creates a sense of impact and reaction. Why do we react? Because we desire something, we're attached to a certain outcome. And when somebody thwarts that, we believe something has happened to us, and we believe that we need to react to it. That's why in the book Sadhu Beware, which is a very demanding list of all the things that you do. He says, oh, when people misunderstand you, don't explain yourself. <laughs> it's just like, he doesn't even say, don't even try to justify yourself. Just leave it. Just, you know, let it sit there. Of course, you know, well, there's no, I'm not going to say, of course, anything. But it's, it's just very interesting. That's why <clears throat> real deep yogis <clears throat> often, they don't function like we function. <clears throat> they just don't do things like we do them. Because they're not reacting. They're just letting it happen around them. For a moment. Um, let me just see what else I have here. I can't read my own handwriting, so I'll just have to let it go. Oh, I didn't read the... I don't know why. I'm commenting on the commentary, which I haven't read yet. Our personalities are not our own much less so, in fact, than the belief that our egos are our own. Our personalities are not our own, not our own, even less than our egos are our own. 
Isn't that great news? I know. I really love that too. So let's just enjoy that for a minute. Every living being is a unique expression of the infinite. In the plant, however, the life force manifested in that form has no egoic reality. For it to do so, it would need to have acquired self-definition, memories, individual traits. It has none of these. A plant has no self-definition, no memories, no individual traits. The plant doesn't sit around and say, remember when we were seeds together? (laughs) It has none of these. Still less has it any memory of past reactions, except very vaguely. Are we talking about plants? Okay. I think we're still talking about plants. In the plant, however, okay, it has no memory of past reactions except very vaguely desires, except as a sort of life impulse. Everything wants to continue to exist or attachments. Despite the fact that the ego is the greatest obstacle on the spiritual path, it is also the incarcerated soul's greatest need and blessing. Because now we do have self-definition. We do have memory, we do have individual traits, and therefore we can reflect on what's going on. If it is ever to reach the point in its outward evolution, even to set foot on the spiritual path with conscious yearning. You know, because I, I've said this many times when I've seen people really suffering, because sometimes people really suffer. It's very painful. You just you know, really breathtaking away difficulties face people or face us. You know, maybe you've had them or we've seen them. But then I say to myself, this is the kind of suffering that causes people eventually to come to God. And so that's where you have to say, why take it so hard? It doesn't matter what happens to us. It only matters if it leads to freedom. And whether or not it leads to freedom is how we respond to it. Of course, I I was in the car tonight and... Uh, just coming down El Camino with all those stoplights, I kept being right next to this the same vehicle. And this man that was in that car, I don't know how old he was, it was impossible to tell, but you could see, um, from a yogic point of view, I don't think it had been a great incarnation for him. Just, there was his, every line of his face, the whole way his features, I mean, I just glanced at him, but I, I, I kept seeing him. Everything had thickened and coarsened and become really heavy. And just whatever age he was, that's how he'd taken all his life experiences. And, you know, I don't think he was racing toward God. I think he he was just dulling down until God would have no choice except just to kick him off the planet and let him start over again. But... Eventually, whether it's conscious or not, we have, we have memories. We remember that, wow, this didn't work out so well the last time. And we don't know why we're disinclined or inclined towards certain things, but it's because we have been through this suffering. And when we suffer enough, we begin to reevaluate our first premises. But often we are not willing to evaluate our first premises until they absolutely fail to work. Otherwise, we follow that 
time-honored principle, which is the definition of craziness, which is that you do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. And that's exactly what we do. We just start over again, being full full of impacts and reactions and attachments and desires. And then one more time, it doesn't quite come out the way it's supposed to come out. And we either then begin to ask ourselves, maybe there's something seriously wrong with this picture. But we, we don't go there if it works. That's why, in theory, we stop caring whether it's working or not working. We just want to get through it. Because it, it, it working and everything being comfortable is not being happy. It's being pleased. And whereas we think we want to be pleased, we gradually realize that we want to be free. And if you really want to be free, you don't mind the process. You see what I just, uh, what is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi? It just flips over. And even if you can grasp it in a theoretical sense, to really get that with your heart is something else. And in a couple of sutras, we start talking about the vrittis and the feelings. And it's, it's all about the feelings. It's all about our instinctive and natural response. That's why it's so terrific every once in a while when you notice yourself having a spontaneously unexpected super-duper response to something. <laughs> when uh, we went through the, um, the, what we call the Berlucci trial, the trial in which the reputation-destroying trial, where the verdict went against us in the end and all of those really, really despicable, dishonest people actually even got money from us. Um, and we were sitting in the courtroom and the, the, it came in and the verdict was against us, which was really no surprise because the whole trial was a, a mockery of justice. So it had nothing to do with our guilt. It just had to do with the fact that the American legal system can be manipulated more easily than we would like to believe. Having said all of that, they, the, the verdict came in, and I, to this day, am so proud of myself. My actual first response was to think of the plaintiff, who is such a, a dishonest person, and a few of the others, and I thought, oh, those poor souls, they won. Uh, that, that was really my first response. Oh, those poor souls, they won. Not only did they do this really awful thing, but now that bad karma is just going to roll on farther because now they've triumphed. So they're going to take this, this bad karma, which is not, you're not supposed to say that. That's like telling people they're going to have to go to hell, but this deep misunderstanding and adharmic action on their part, and now they're going to get to make it worse before it's going to finally come around and eat them up, because it must. But I, I was just, I was so pleased. I didn't even stop to think. It just occurred to me like that, because it was such a mess. And besides, it had nothing to do with us. You know, we know who we are. and didn't really make any difference what these people thought. But that, that's very comforting when those things begin to happen, that you realize, well, I have made a little progress. Because now it's not just... I can, I can spew this out, I can say it, I can go back to my book, I can repeat the affirmations. I've been hit and this is my reaction. <laughs> of course, that was in 1998 and this is 2012, but 2015, but you know, there have been a couple in between, but still, it was a great moment. <laughs> All right, anything else for tonight? Okay. This is actually 2015, isn't it? Incredible. I thought it was 2012. I've been thinking it's been 2012 for quite some time. (laughs) Yeah, for years. 
I went through sutras 4.7 through 4.11. But I think I'm going to, I'm not quite done with 4.11, so if somebody has a pen.